0: Hello, and
2: welcome back to another episode of New Books and Film. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, my guest is David Kono. David has written Real Terror, the scary, bloody, gory, 100-year history of classic horror films. Now, right up front, I want to confess that before I read Real Terror and before I spoke to Dave on the phone, if someone had asked me, are you a fan of horror movies, I would have probably said no. Now, to be sure, I'd seen many of the major classics, such as Jaws, The Exorcist, Psycho, and so on. But I am not someone who would have reached for the first uh, zombie movie I could find on a Friday night to sit in the dark to be scared to death. Just isn't my thing. But after reading Dave's great book and after spending an hour talking to him on the phone... I had to think that maybe I should reconsider my position. Dave is really a passionate advocate for the genre. He has definite uh, opinions about what he likes and what he doesn't like, as you'll hear. Um, He is someone who, for example, as you'll find out, is not a tremendous fan of remakes, nor is he a big fan of the torture porn genre, which was so popular over the last decade. So what I think Dave really is, is as much as he's a fan, he's a true critic. He is going to... Uh, shoot straight with all of us in this interview, and he is going to lay out what he thinks makes for a great horror film and also reveal what he thinks makes for a uh, less than a entertaining horror movie experience for the viewer. I had a great time talking to Dave. I think that probably will come through in the interview. So appreciate everyone tuning in and listening today, and here it is. Hey, Dave. Hey. How are you doing today?
0: Uh, So far, so good. Um, uh, Good afternoon uh, or good evening, uh, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea.
2: Uh, so I'm, I'm reaching Dave from the, uh, the deep in the heart of the San Fernando Valley, and uh, we're going to talk to him today about his great book, Real Terror, which came out on St. Martin's just uh, a couple of years back. And
0: uh, uh, actually, about a year back. Actually, it's funny. Uh, by the time everybody hears this, um, October second uh, will be the one year anniversary. So welcome. by the time you hear this, it'll it'll have been out in the world a year.
2: Congratulations. Um, and so let me start off with. Um, uh, asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself how you came to write this book and maybe a bit about your background as a writer
0: Oh okay um say well it's it's a long story, and I'll try and make it uh painfully brief if I can. Um, uh, essentially with uh, writing a book about horror films, I mean it's I guess it's a cliche answer, but it's like you know, write what you know and um i I've been a horror film fan for for many, many years. Um, you know, I was kind of a kid of the VCR boom. And um, that was how a lot of people like myself were able to access The Forbidden. And a lot of stuff that was coming out at the time with like the quote-unquote mad slasher films, like Friday the 13th and stuff like that, was The Forbidden. And, you know, one, one day I was over at a friend's house, and he had a whole drawer full of horror movies, and we were watching them all night. And that uh, was kind of like uh, my... my uh, my introduction to the forbidden and it's uh um you know i i had done a book about metal and hard rock and um you know that was something i knew or something i thought i knew but um you know it's one of those things the more the deeper you go in it's like the more you know the more you know what you don't know and um so so that was like a big maze that I got lost in for a long time and you know, the horror films was something I knew better and I think also it was something that I would enjoy a lot more because uh trying to deal with the music business and musicians and their people was uh really not a terribly fun experience, I really have to say. Uh this book, especially the the horror film book was a lot of fun and I I enjoyed like every just about every minute of working on it the people were a lot easier to deal with and um you know because it's like what i went through with bang your head i mean it, it got done and it got out into the world but i also was like you know i i just can't go through an experience like that one more time it was just way way too difficult and um you know i i had to do something that would be a lot more fun and a lot more enjoyable and i you know, Real Terror was that project. It really was a lot more, you know, enjoyable and a lot more fun. And um, I, I had a blast writing it. And it, it gave me, you know, uh, during some really hard times, it gave me reason to keep going. Whereas, like, you know, other projects I've worked on, like, you know, Bang Your Head especially, was like, you know, it, it just was not... You know, if you if you needed something to keep you going when life is really bad, that's not what it was. Right. I, w- I wouldn't recommend working or being around these bands at all because cool. it's just uh, you know it's it's uh, a lot of them are just not fun people to be around and it's you know that kind of thing. And it's like horror films are like uh, people may think that's a negative force in somebody's life, but I I found it a catharsis really. And writing this book was big catharsis.
2: It's, yeah, that's it's, it, interesting point you bring up because um, you know I have to confess that I'm not the, I, I don't reach for horror movies as my first choice for watching movies and we can talk a little bit about that I, I certainly have some that I'm big fans of but um, you know as long as you brought up uh, bang your head which I certainly urge everyone to to seek out great book on heavy metal um, was an inspiration to me as a writer and I know to other other writers um, how did your love of heavy metal as a kid feed your love of horror movies or vice versa.
0: Um. Well, I I think I got into. I probably I I've been, probably been into horror films a lot longer than I was into music because I grew up with them and you know the horror movies were always on television back in the day. A lot of you know a lot of a lot of cheesy like B movie stuff and that that's really like my true love of those kinds of films. And my my very first book was about you know B movies and low budget. Stuff and um, so, so I grew up with that on television. Right. You know, that was a big Saturday morning thing. They would show that along with cartoons and things like that. I, I, I do think that the uh, that they do have similar fan bases, though. I mean, a lot of metalheads like horror films. Yeah. And, um, I, I certainly did. And as far as it feeding each other, I, I think it, it metal's almost kind of like a supplementary uh, soundtrack to like what mm-hmm. you're watching in a way. I mean, it, I mean both of the movies. And the music can be very aggressive and pretty hardcore, and that that kind of thing. And it's it seems like the more extreme metal you're into, the more extreme you like your horror films. And there's even some stuff that I'm even like, you know, that that's just too hardcore for me as far as horror films, mm. you know, that kind of thing. And mm. it's like, but you know, I mean, teach their own. I mean, it's I think it's only natural that things are going to get angrier, more aggressive, and pushed to an extreme. That that always seems to be the way <laughs> that horror yeah. films and metal tend yeah. to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, it's like you know, another generation comes along that, like you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I would think especially with what's going on in the world, where you know, there's 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 such a huge gap between the haves and the have-nots. You know, they'll probably be stuff that's even more angry and pissed off because I mean that that's, that's a big part of it, and it's um, and both are also. A, a way of dealing with the dark things in life that, um, you know, you can you can go through things like that vicariously and not... The, the, you know, I, I think it's actually a very positive thing. I mean, I, I remember I was talking to people quite a bit, you know, when Jeff Hanneman from Slayer died earlier this year, and, and people talked about you know, so many people were against Slayer's music, and there were all these Christian zealots protesting his funeral and all that, but I, I would be one of those people who would say, I think their music actually did more, more good than harm Mm. because I needed a band like Slayer growing up or probably, you know, I I probably would have killed myself or Mm. or certainly killed somebody else. You know, it was a great outlet for my anger. And, and, uh, so horror films were in a way too. I mean, it's like, I, I felt a lot better watching other people getting killed than having to hurt somebody, you know, It, it was a big release for me. It really did. And it also, you know, it, it, it allows you to get in touch with your dark side in a healthy way, and mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, think denying that you have that and acting as if like it's mm-hmm. abnormal is, is, is unhealthy, in my opinion, but mm-hmm. what do I know?
2: Well, you know more about horror movies than I do, and probably most of the people listening to this podcast. So, um,
0: well, I to, don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people that know a lot about this stuff too. I mean, it's like I love B movies, and I know uh, I have friends of mine that like forgot more about B <laughs> than, than I'll ever know. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty nuts.
2: <laughs> well, tell me. So, um, based on what you do know, which I still would say is a lot, what, what defines horror as a genre, and how has that changed maybe since the beginning of? Um, that the period you cover in your book from the early 20th century up till today.
0: You know, I don't, I don't think horror film really changes so much. I think it's just kind of how people present it. I mean, there's, there's, there've been some changes here and there and things have come along, but by and large, I don't think it's changed that much. I mean, it's certainly come a long way since the universal films mm-hmm. all, but You know, I mean, we have stuff like going back to the Grand Guignol and all that. I I don't know if I pronounced that right, but, uh, you know, we had horror elements in Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's like, uh, I I don't think it's really, I don't know if it's really changed so much. It's kind of like what people say in Hollywood, where a director will say, I'm not really, you know, making anything different. I make the same movie over and over again. I just put a different dress on it. Right. I think it's it's kind of that way as well. I mean, I don't know if exactly I'm telling any new stories. I'm just kind of putting a new dress on it in a way as well. I mean, it's like, um, you know, like, um, you know, like with bang your head and real terror. I mean, in a way, they're kind of structured the same. It's the same kind of book, but you know, with a different, you know, I kind of took like the Easy Riders, Raging Bulls format, of, you know, for for the listeners who've read that book it was like uh, you know a big history with a lot of characters going right. in and out and right. you know it, it was a span over a longer period of time but it was that kind of idea right? and right. Uh, but as far as like what constitutes horror I mean I, I don't know I think it's just it's. I mean it, it's funny because it's kind of hard to, to sum that up in just one little thing right. I, I would just say it's just you know, it's just something that taps into what you are afraid of, and um, I don't, I don't know if it's any more complicated than that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, horror takes you inside your fear, and you, you, it taps into what what you're afraid of. I, I really can't think. I, I don't know. I mean, it's like whether you want to use less blood or more blood, or more monsters, or so you don't show the monster at all. There's a lot of ways you can play around with that. But I, I think a lot of the basic elements are kind of. Kind of the same, and I don't know if they're really too much, too much different. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think it's really how you do it or how you present it. I mean, I've, I've said many times that, you know, with um, like with something like Halloween, if if you didn't have a director that didn't have the vision that like John Carpenter had, it would have been just another movie, and it would have been long forgotten because it, without any style to it, there's really nothing to it. I mean, it's right. just a guy and a mask running around with a knife killing people. I mean we've seen that a million times. There's nothing special about that. It's how it's done. And I think that's where a lot of these horror remakes really don't get it. It's that all these movies if you don't have something you know a, a unique vision or something interesting or different to say they're just they're just horror movies, and there's nothing special about them. Right. You know, it's like, um, and a lot of these movies are getting remade, and everyone's like, well, yeah, so what? Like, what's so great about that? There's nothing special there. And it's just, uh, you know, because a lot of them are pretty basic, and it's what you bring to them that makes them different, or just kind of like, um, if, if you didn't have somebody like um, like Steven Spielberg doing Jaws, it would have just been another B movie or another, you know you know, or just another cheesy film from Universal that would have been long forgotten. Right. Or, um, you know, Francis Ford Coppola hadn't been brought on, you know, to, to do the Godfather, would have just been another movie from the seventies that would be long forgotten. It's, it's, It's what you bring of your, your vision to it or your point of view. And I think, you know, when you're redoing movies and things like that, you know, you're just remaking another movie and it's just like, you know, there's
2: nothing special about that. So, so I take it you're, um, you're not a fan of remakes and is there any remake you can think of that, that surpassed the original? Well, in the I try genre? very,
0: I try very hard to avoid them strictly because, I mean, a lot of these movies are very near and dear to my heart as well as right. everyone else's. And, uh, um, you know, there's other remakes for other for other movies that I've enjoyed enormously, like Scarface. You know, I mean, it's like a lot of people probably don't even know there was Scarface in the 30s, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I think remakes can go, you know, can go above and beyond what they originally started as. But I think a lot of the stuff and, and what I've preached many times before... Is that you know? There's a lot of horror films that are great as they are, and there's no point in remaking mm-hmm. *Spiria* or *Black Christmas* or, or *Halloween*, which which is really blasphemous. There was no point in remaking *Halloween* whatsoever. It's like why not take a crappy B movie from the from the 70s and try and make it better? Instead, they're making good movies and making them and making them bad. Mm-hmm. So I I just don't
2: see the point of that. Yeah. One of the reasons I was thinking about it too, is I just saw that Carrie is being remade for the the second time, which I didn't even know there was a, a remake in 2002. Okay. So um, circling back to the 1950s, then uh, I didn't know, speaking of, of uh, frightening things that uh, might dwell in your neighborhood is uh, that the uh, psycho movie actually was inspired by the Ed Gein serial killer incident in 1957 in Wisconsin.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, that was kind of the template for a lot of horror films to follow. I mean, it was the inspiration for uh, it was the inspiration for Texas Chainsaw Massacre and many, many other movies to follow. But yeah, Ed Gein was kind of like the template for a lot of modern horror films, especially movies that involve like you know cannibalism and necrophilia and all those other you know wonderful fun fun things. In fact. Um, you know, in the '70s, there was a movie made about him that was kind of like a mockumentary called *Deranged*, which is a pretty good horror film, and um, it's it's um, it's it's still pretty brutal, I would say, even by mm-hmm. today's standards. There's some stuff in it that's pretty rough mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm.
2: And of course, and was, Slayer wrote, wrote. Sorry to talk over you. That Slayer's Dead Skin Mask, of course, jumps to mind.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, because a lot of that metal stuff it all comes from horror movies and stuff like that. Anyway, it's all about, like, trying to do the scariest thing right. or write about the scariest thing imaginable, and that's why we have so much Satanism in heavy metal is because of Number of the Beast, which was based on one of the Omen films. Right. And then after that, everybody was writing about 666 and Satan and all that, but that was inspired by Omen, too. Right,
2: right. So um, the, uh, the, the question I was going to follow up with is, is that a, is that? Excuse my ignorance in this area. Is that pretty much uh, par for the course that real life murders are inspiration for horror? Do you find that? To-
0: I think in that case it was. I, I don't. I don't know about any others. I don't know if Halloween was inspired by anything real life. I mean, like something like Halloween. It was just kind of more like a tradition of how. Um, you know it was, that stuff like that's just more of like a tradition, or, or like when a stranger calls that's kind of right. like a tradition of an urban legend mm-hmm. kind of thing or like these stories you hear about that may or may not be true or you you know it's like john carpenter once said every every town has a secret and there's usually a house that people believe is haunted or some house where somebody went crazy and uh, something like that so i think it's more based on that i mean some stuff is. I, I guess to some extent, but I don't know. I mean, some people, I guess, really do the research and get into serial killers and things like that. I, but I, I don't know how much of it is really based on real life, or how much it's like. It, I, I don't know how much of that was really a consideration. I think now people are like, well, movies have to be more real and more relatable, and blah mm-hmm. blah blah. You know, I, I I would dare to say that the earlier stuff is probably based more on just like fantasy. Right. You know, but but I'm you know. Uh, I mean, something like Jaws was based on a real incident right. that happened a long time ago with a real shark and that kind of thing. Right. So, But, you know, as far as that, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of stuff just has to hit you in a primal way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what Hitchcock had said. He he never really cared so much about the story or the dialogue. It's like, you know, I just want to do something that's really going to scare people and jolt them at the right moment. Right. That's always been his- number one priority. Everything else kind of came after that.
2: Well, and Psycho certainly scared the hell out of America, and I, I wanted you to talk a bit about um, some of the, uh, the ways that Hitchcock um, sought to protect basically his vision for the film by not shooting very much, which I thought was a fascinating story that you had in the book. Yeah.
0: Well, he did that on all his films, basically to protect himself from anybody taking the movie away from him and trying to re-edit it. It's like that that's how he would protect himself, and he would shoot so little that there was no other way you could really cut the movie. It wouldn't be a lot of coverage, and the studio couldn't really ruin it. And, um, you know, you talk about stuff based on real life. I mean, a lot of people point to Psycho as the point where the monster was next door. Right. And, you know, now we know so much stuff about how, you know... Uh, you know, we hear so many stories about, oh, I lived next door to that guy, and he seemed so normal, and I had no idea what he was doing in the middle of the night, and yada, 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 you know, but we didn't see movies like that at that time. I mean, now we see a lot of movies like <sighs> So, you know the point was that a lot of people say that was kind of like the big turning point it was like the, like the start of the modern horror film where like, you know, again, it was like, a, it wasn't a vampire or a Frankenstein or a wolfman. This is something that, that could happen and could really be real. And, um, you know, and again, it, it, it it's funny how Anthony Perkins always became best known for that role because he was against typecasting at that time. I mean, he was just like this, I don't know how you would describe it, but he was cast because he was somebody you wouldn't expect or suspect. You know, if you go back at the Christie rule, of, you know, like it's always the person you least expect or suspect, and that's who did it. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, Car- um, Carpenter. What am I saying? I'm saying, uh, you know, Hitchcock. Yeah, again, that was a lot, and and he went to extraordinary lengths back in those days where, um, you know, we see, we see this a lot now, and this all comes from Hitchcock, where everything's like top secret and don't give away the ending and all of that. And a lot of people have followed that since, where it's like, you, you know, where it's like he really wanted to protect it and you had to see the movie from beginning to end because right. if you came in halfway through, you'd really be confused and right. ruin everything and, and all that kind of stuff. And And that really just helped build more momentum and all of that for the for the film because it's like everyone wants to see what's in it and and, and audiences like um like in the book Larry Cohen said to me, you know, audiences are very good about keeping the secret. I mean they did it with the Sixth Sense, they did it with the crying game, they did it with Psycho. And I think, you know, as long as you play fair with the audience you know, it's the audiences will keep the secret and they won't want to spoil it for somebody. If it's a bad ending, they probably won't give it away either, but they're not going to recommend you see it, not recommend, Oh, you got to see what happens at the end and how it all wraps up.
2: Right. Right. Well, today, um, we're on, uh, inundated, excuse me, with, um, With zombie movies, and I I must confess, I didn't know that much about Night of the Living Dead and how it was filmed on such a shoestring budget. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that movie and your your thoughts on its lasting influence?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, and also at the time it came out, it was a very shocking movie because horror films were... You know, kind of more like Saturday matinee kind of stuff. And I I remembered hearing a story about how a lot of, like, kids were dropped off to see that because everyone thought it was just some silly monster movie. And this was something that was really terrifying, that really traumatized people. And it also, you know, it also came out at a time that, you know, there's, there's a lot of argument and debate about this. I mean, the people who made the film, you know, certainly will tell you none none of this was intentional but it also came out during a very turbulent time in the world and everyone was like uh, the European critics saw a lot of like oh well this is the subtext for Vietnam and race relations and blah 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 Uh, to the best of my knowledge and from what everyone told me absolutely none of that was intentional at all but people picked up on that and could relate to it in some way and people saw it as like a movie of its time and that it grew out of the turmoil of the 60s I think I think a lot of people saw Last House on the Left as the same way. It's like something that grew out of, uh, you know, the turmoil of the 60s going into the, and the disillusionment of the 70s and how we were living in a really grim, dark time. And we didn't, you know, it, you know, things were just not going well in our country with Vietnam and Watergate and all of that. And so, you know, as far as, like, the impact and the the influence of Night of the Living Dead. I mean, you know, George Romero. I will always credit for inventing the modern zombie because, mm-hmm. you know, you know, z- zombies didn't didn't eat people. They didn't, you know, they didn't. It, it wasn't like what we see now, where like zombies were really, you know, you know they would just kind of wander around in a trance and strangle people every once in a while. And, you know, as I think I mentioned um, with Dawn of the Dead, too. It's like they were in a in a nice day-glow environment, and they were still scary. I mean, a lot of that movie takes place during the day. So, you know, so he kind of made them scary all around, and he made them, you know, a real serious threat. And uh, what, what's interesting, too, is just this whole thing about, and I've, I've written about this before, with... Um, Fast moving like zombies move fast now because of the influence from video games. And George Romero never made fast moving zombies, and he never will. You know, the whole point is that you think you can outsmart them because they move really slow, but they move in groups and they can, you know, and they can gang up on you and kill you and eat you in groups. But everyone always underestimates. Well, not everybody, but certain people usually underestimate them. And that kind of thing, and and he never saw the point of like a fast moving zombie because you know they're still in the process of dying and they're rotting and falling apart, they're not going to move fast, so that kind of thing. he also came up with the whole thing about how you kill a zombie by you know ending its brain activity by shooting it in the head, so you know all of that is like everything that's been followed since then,
2: yeah, it's sort of like he wrote the he wrote the rules for the movies, and that's that's you know quite an amazing a legacy when you think about how you cannot turn around um in American culture today without bumping into a a zombie. Excuse the phrase, but it's it's they're just everywhere. And do you think we're we're close to reaching the uh saturation point where it's gonna be uh you know overkill with this uh the zombie obsession?
0: Um I actually thought we were there two years ago. I thought two years ago that the whole zombie thing was gonna peak and and pretty much be done. And um I, it's amazing that they're still going to me. I also think it's amazing how they tried to resurrect other monsters. Like, they tried to bring the Wolfman back, and they totally screwed that up. And um, and now it's probably going to be a long time before we get another werewolf movie again. And You know, and the whole Twilight thing with vampires, they're not really vampires. But, you know, I I don't know what that is. But, you know, it's it's the same kind of thing. I I guess maybe there isn't... And and Frankenstein's probably going to be pretty hard to reinvent or do differently, and you can only do that so many times. I guess it's probably easier to to, I guess, put your own stamp on zombies or give them something different that, um, you you know, you could probably project onto them whatever you want. I mean, you know, George Romero made them kind of a political vehicle, uh, you know, and other people can do this or that or whatever. I mean, there's there's actually quite a bit you can do with them. There's probably a bit you can do with werewolves and vampires, too. You just don't see anybody really trying it.
2: Right. Uh, Right. You know, that kind of... And another, of course, uh, I think uh, evergreen theme in, in horror movies is uh, is demonic possession, and of course, The Exorcist yeah. being the granddaddy of all those films. And um, you had some great stories in there uh, in in Real Terror about the extremes that um, the director William Friedkin went to to make The Exorcist, from air conditioners to all of these other things he did to create this this environment.
0: Yeah, yeah, because. Also, that's the other thing you got to remember at the time, too, is that we don't have CGI and all of that, and all that had to be done with practical effects, and a lot of times back in those days, you, you know, special effects people would read a script and go, well, yeah, this is great, but how are we going to make it? I mean, how are we going to do this? I mean, Rick, Rick Baker had said to me a lot of times when he would do movies with David Cronenberg, he would read the script and go, well, I don't know if we can make this. he He would try and figure out, it would start out with the most insane stuff you would ever read, and then they would try and get it down to something that was makeable and shootable you know and The Exorcist was one of those things that like y- there was so much stuff that like y- you know how do you make this how do you do this I mean you know you, you basically had to like y- you know invent the wheel every day on right. that film in terms of special effects and uh, Marcel Vercoutur, who just passed away recently who was a special effects guy on that film I remember he said yeah, you know, he told me this is a story in the book that they had a meeting at Warner Brothers, and basically Warner Brothers said to them, "This movie's right on the borderline. It's either going to be like the scariest thing ever made, or like the biggest joke. But it's not going to be anything in between." And, and it's interesting too how quite a few horror films have had that kind of. I'm sure Jaws was kind of like the same thing. I know that, like, with Jaws, it was like, if they didn't believe the shark, forget it, the whole movie was going to go in the toilet. Right. And, um, and I know that's what the editor of Seven told me when he read the script for that. He said, this is either going to be brilliant or completely horrible, but it's not going to be anything in between. So, you know, and, and with The Exorcist, the big thing was believability. And, you know, Friedkin also, I mean, because this was not an easy movie to make, but he also decreed from the beginning there's to be no optical effects in the film, and this that and blah 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 and again it's like how do you do this how do you make this believable how do you make people believe it and um i think he had said that if you i when they went back and and you know did like re-releases for it and all that i, I think he had even said that like I, I wouldn't change that much digitally or get rid of this wire or that wire i think it's, it still looks pretty good all things considered
2: yeah, I mean, I just saw it maybe two years ago, and it's it's a scary movie. It's a really, really scary movie. Even, um, you know, 40, 40, almost 40 years later or whatever, it's just a, uh, it's really a, an absolute um, classic. And um, the other thing I thought was really um, a great point you brought out through Real Terror is the importance sometimes of not actually showing The monster. So in Rosemary's Baby, you observe that we never actually see what the baby looks like, the demonic child looks like. And they did the same with Jaws, obviously, with hiding the shark for much of the movie.
0: Yeah, and the interesting thing is that people have really gone with that Jaws story, and it's become an urban legend like that. But what a lot of people don't report is that for the early parts of the movie, you were never supposed to see the shark. You know, and this was long before... The shark was created, and there were all these problems with it breaking down. But, you know, until the kid got eaten on the raft, you were never supposed to see the shark. You weren't going to see it in the opening scenes. You weren't going to see it on the pier. So I think some people kind of taken that and made it... I mean, you had to see it less than they were going to show it. But, you know, I think some people have also taken that as kind of urban legend. It's like, you know, kind of the whole point was like the shark was lurking and lurking and, you know... They had to show it less than, you know, I think they originally planned, but it wasn't like the shark was going to be in every scene and then they couldn't do that. So there's some people who've kind of taken that as like urban legend right. and taken that a lot further. And if, and if you really look back on it, like I wrote in the book, I mean, they show the shark just enough and it, it works fine. I mean... You know, um, I'm actually I actually do enjoy Jaws too, believe it or not. But that's one where they showed the shark way too much. The showed it the first scene and all that, and you know that that's obviously what audiences wanted at the right. time. But you know, uh, there is something about being economical and not showing something or or showing it just when you can. Uh, you know, and a lot of people. Well, you know, it's like the, the late Dan O'Bannon told me about. Uh, about Alien. He said, you know, the, the unknown is always the most frightening thing. That's like one of the most, that's one of the oldest storytelling devices there is. And that, um, oh God, I, I know, I was just thinking for a second, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second. But yeah, the unknown is the most scary thing. And, and if you show something too much, it, it, it lets the audience get used to it, right. and they're not scared of it.
2: Right, right. The uh, And of course, Alien, like you just said, that's that follows that that template, I think, perfectly in terms of the you know you don't have the big reveal until later when you have the uh, the chest burst and then other things happen in the movie. But um, what what are your thoughts on the merger of uh, or maybe the uh, the bringing together of, of science fiction and horror? Are there others other than Alien that you kind of see as the 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 best of that genre?
0: Well, I think that Alien was the first to really bring it together in a big way. Um, I'm trying to think what were some others, and I know there's others that have tried the alien kind of concept with, like, something on a, on a ship or something on a boat. See, um, off, off the top of my head, it's kind of hard to think of a science fiction horror crossover. I, I, it, that really works. I mean, there were others before. it. I mean, you know, there are a lot of science fiction, like like Creature from the Black Lagoon right. and, and it, the Terror from Beyond Space and that right. kind of thing. I I think Alien was the one that that brought it together to where it was really effective and really strong and and it was interesting how that came on the heels of Star Wars and the two totally I mean Star Wars is such an up hopeful movie and yeah. Alien's you know a really dark scary movie but you know Alien went into development as fast as it could because that was the closest thing they had to Star Wars in development at Fox and Star Wars took everybody by surprise and like, Oh, we need more movies like this so you know, but it was it was so polar opposite of star
2: wars right and and the other uh, thing i would say too in making it the polar opposite I, I, I remember of course as a kid seeing star wars i actually saw it eight times as a kid in the theater those were the days when your your mom would drop you off and say go see a matinee and we'll pick you up in two hours um, right. but how well illuminated of course all the spaceships are in star wars for the most part and yet in in alien you have dripping water you have dark corridors. It, it's more like a real ocean going ship or a submarine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing too is, you know, Ridley Scott wanted to take as much from star Wars as he could with that. And the one thing that I think he took from it, especially was when you look at star Wars, they're all old ships that have, that have been used a lot and have been in a lot of crashes and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, all the, the, kind of the idea with Star Wars is that all of this stuff has been around for a long time, and mm-hmm. with the Alien, it's kind of the same thing. It's kind of like, these guys are truckers, and they're like truck drivers, except now we're, like, trucking out in space. Yeah. You know, and it's like, we got to get to the next planet, as opposed to, like, i got to drive to Omaha in three days, or yeah. something like that. They're all, like, working-class guys, like, with the... You know, as you saw, like, with the baseball caps and all that. It's a very... You know, these are very working-class kind of guys, you know?
2: Do you think that carried over in... Uh in uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, that same approach. I seem uh, to remember that well, about that well, movie. He
0: kinda, he, I, I think John Carpenter's stuff, it came from the original Thing, and he did, you know, you, you may also remember that Dan O'Bannon, you know, did Dark Star with him, and that was kind of like his goof on uh, 2001, but uh, some of that carried over to Star Wars and Alien as well. Um, in fact, uh, Ridley Scott was not a science fiction fan, well, one of his favorite movies was *Dark Star*, and so so he had a connection there with Dan O'Bannon with that. And I think, um, you know, I think that probably comes more from just from like uh, the the older science fiction films. I think that was more where, where John was coming from. But you know, it wouldn't surprise me if that worked its way in as well. You know, I mean, you know, *Alien* was a very influential movie, right. but but I think he was kind of more. More, more in tune with the with the original, I guess you could say, but also trying to take it in his own way because he loved the original thing so much, and he was like, well, I I, I can't remake it. And be it, it's on its own terms. I have to do my own thing with it. Right. That's that's pretty much what he did. And he also he gave Rob Bottin the the uh, the makeup artist his free license to just run amok and just come up with whatever insane things he wanted. And that's why that movie had so many insane things in it. I mean, it really. And again, that was a big moment for special effects. That was a big time when you know, like American Werewolf in London and a couple of other movies that broke a lot of ground and special effects were all coming out at the same time. And a lot of these makeup guys were really pushing what was, what was possible and what you could do with special effects. Because in those days we didn't have CGI. And again, all that stuff took place on the set in the camera, you know, not with opticals, And that was the other thing too. was like a lot of that. I, I think they did try to do, a computer effect on the thing i i think i saw a test of it and it didn't turn out particularly well but you know it looked like an atari video game right kind of thing and um you know and at the time everybody was trying to go for as much realism as possible even though what you were seeing was clearly not real right you know, american werewolf it's like they do the werewolf transformation in a well-lit room um and i know with the thing that was a big fight too was they tried to do a lot of that stuff in well-lit rooms, and Rob Bottin was kind of like, well, you have to have it more in the dark, because with makeup, there's a lot of stuff you have to hide in the dark, otherwise it's going to give away that its makeup and that kind of thing. But that, but that was kind of what people were going for at the time. It's like, should try to make it as real as possible and try and do it in environments you hadn't seen it before.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, because... That's what Roman Polanski is to say. You know, that's why Rosemary's Baby is a really well-lit film. He used to say... You know anybody can scare you in the dark. Let's see, you scare somebody with all the lights.
2: Right, right. Another um, you know, thing that I was really quite surprised about uh, in reading Real Terror, and there were so many rel- uh, revelations in this book for me, um, is about that the critics didn't like The Shining. And I always had this sort of imagined that because it was made by this legend of a director um, that with Jack Nicholson starring in the movie, that it was kind of a no-brainer that the critics loved it.
0: No, no. In fact, when it came out, when it first came out, it got killed. And, um, you know, I remember seeing The Shining for the first time on cable God, a long time ago when I was a little kid, and I shouldn't have been watching it. And, you know, I, I, I thought it was a really terrific movie. I couldn't understand why the critics didn't like it. I mean, you can you can kind of see, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of, there's definitely parts of it that meander, and there's parts of it where it kind of falls flat, but I think the good stuff in the movie still really holds up very well. Mm-hmm. And... You know the the main thing is it's like, um, you know it's it's not a perf it's not a perfect movie, but the good stuff. It, and whether you like Stanley, Kubrick, what I was trying to say is whether whether you like Stanley Kubrick's work or not. You know, a lot of his movies you see them once, and there's things in them that you never forget. I mean, when I saw The Shining, the one time I saw it, there's so much of it I could still remember. Right. 30 years later, just like you see 2001 and those images that will always stay with
1: right. you.
0: You know, that kind of thing. So yeah, it, it, when it first came out, yes, it, it got killed by the critics, and very few of them liked it or got it. But a couple of years later, you started to see that critical opinion on that film did start to turn around. Right. And it's turned around, and again, the signing's still not a perfect movie, but, but it's still you know, it's it's still the stuff in it that's really good still really delivers. Like I think, you know, the steady cam work in that film is still incredibly well done. And um, you know, it's it's certainly a well made movie. I mean, whether you like Kubrick's movies or not, in terms of pure filmmaking technique, I mean he really was a master right. at what at what he did in terms of like the cinematography. All the all the technical aspects of his films are always excellent. And again, also at the time What was interesting for me to learn going back was at the time the horror community did not like the film either because I think they kind of felt like he was intruding Mm -hmm. on their territory in a way. A lot of established horror film directors like David Cronenberg and uh, Brian De Palma were like, well, you know, Kubrick's going to come in here and he's going to, you know, he's announcing he's making the ultimate horror movie but he really doesn't understand the genre and he doesn't understand this and that and You know, a a lot of the horror film directors didn't like it. And and Stephen King, as we all know, has famously never, never liked the film either. I was not happy with how it turned out. And I think that's probably why he's got a lot more control over what's being done with his films now. than, you know, I mean, that was the quote in the book that several people told me about how... um, he kind of reconciled on some level that, like, your book is your book and the movie's the movie. I mean, because people asked him several times. You know, he said this to several people I interviewed who worked with Romero. It was probably on Creepshow when they were working. And People said, you know, well, well, how do you feel about how Hollywood's ruined your books? He said, well, they haven't ruined my books. My books are on the shelves behind me. They're in all the bookstores. You can read them. You know, they haven't ruined my books. Yeah, so the- that's that's kind of how he looked at it. But I think with The Shining after that, I think he had more control over what he was doing. And there's this whole thing about how um, if he's not happy with how the movie came out, you can't use his name in the advertising and, and all that. And you'll notice with Carrie, you haven't seen his name on the posters anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a towel right there.
2: Yeah, no no doubt. I mean, I, and, and, of course, I'm, I'm kind of scanning back in my mind all of the Stephen King movies, Christine – uh, the Shining. I mean, you go down the list. I mean, he has had obviously a number of his works made into horror movies. So yeah, I would yeah. imagine that um, after you, you know, if you may not like one of them, and you you know that you're you're the source material for future movies, yeah, I guess that's what you want to do if you want to have creative control. You say, you know, you just can't do it unless I I say it's okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Misery was the was the hardest one because you know I think it was William Goldman who told the story in this book about how everyone was like oh this is a great this, this, is, this is clearly a movie that's going to make a great movie but I'm sure somebody bought it already and then they called Stephen King and said no no one's bought it already you know it's like I really like this one a lot if it's going to get made i got to have like he said you know, i got to have a lot of money and i got to have a lot of control over what's being done so he had a lot more control over you know uh, who was going to direct who was going to write the script and all that and that one he was very happy with um you know, I know he was happy with the Salem's Lot adaptation, the first one. Um, as far as I know, he was happy with Christine. You know, and some, you know, there, there have been some that really did, you know, go above and beyond, like of course, Shawshank Redemption and all that. Um, uh, several recent ones he was happy with enough to put his name on, a, he, he he was allowed, he allowed his name to be used for The Mist, and he liked 1408 as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But, that's, but I think that's kind of an interesting thing, how that's like kind of like a rule of thing. He's the way I understand it is, he's very lazy, fair about how movies are adapted, mm. well, and well, it's like you know, it's like okay, do what you're going to do, and you know, make the movie you're going to make, and I'll check out, I'll check it out later, and you know, that kind of thing. And if it's good, okay, but if not, then you know, you know, you know, then you can't use my name on this or whatever, that kind of thing.
2: Well, well let's do a little bit of an inside baseball into making a book. What was your most difficult yet satisfying interview to get?
0: Um, I'm trying to remember because, I say, um, because the interviews weren't as difficult to get as other ones I've tried to get. Um, uh, although off the top of my head, now that I think about it, um, although he wasn't difficult to get per se, um, I would have to say one of my favorite screenwriters, Andrew Kevin Walker, who um, is, um, I did a and a with him at the Creative Screenwriting Expo many years ago and that wound up in the book and we ran that as an article in the magazine creative screenwriting before it ran and um he had a very bad experience on eight millimeter and stopped talking to the press after Hmm. that and um he's he's just not really comfortable doing interviews or talking and if he's going to do it it's got to be somebody he knows and he's okay with And, and and i can tell you for a fact it doesn't come from any place of ego or anything like that i mean um, you know the, the first time I tried to interview him I actually got a handwritten letter from him saying hey thanks for writing and I appreciate your interest I just you know I just don't have time or whatever he said and, you know and he didn't have to go ahead and do that right and, um, so so that was definitely a real big coup because I you know I love Seven and his screenplay for 8mm was one of the best I ever read the movie's a complete piece of shit and I was just I, I was offended at how bad it turned out because they had a great script and they didn't film it right and from what I understand, that's what happened with The Wolfman, too. Um, you know, I liked his draft of The Wolfman. From what I understand, it, that, that got wrecked beyond repair, too. But um, so so that was definitely one. Um, you know, horror film people, I, I don't recall any that were particularly difficult. Uh, maybe George Romero. It took me a long time to get a hold of him. And then I couldn't get a hold of him again when I wanted to interview him again. But that, that one, I remember, it took a while to finally reach him and get him. And once I did, that was a very, very good interview. Um, but as far as difficulty and, like, jumping through hoops, this isn't like trying to get a hold of, like, heavy metal people or, like, <laughs> or, um, or, like major Hollywood celebrities right. like, that are awful publicists. It's just, like, you, you deal with them a minute and you just want to hang yourself. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it's not really so much like that. Um, there were a lot of people I never heard back from and a lot of people I couldn't reach. But, you know, and if there were certain people when they turned me down, that were very polite about it. Like Sean Cunningham was very polite about it. I mean, he wrote to me and allowed me to use the photo of him. It's from him. He allowed me to use that for the book. And he was very polite. And he just said, you know, Hey, listen, I mean, this is great. you doing a book. It's just, I've answered all these questions a million times. And, you know, I've said all I got to say, but I wish you luck. And, you know, if I can help you with photos or anything. So, you know, and, and that's the other thing too, is I, I think I knew with this project that, um, People were going to be a lot more accessible, and it wouldn't be as difficult. And you know, and it was pretty much that. You know, it's. um, um I'm trying to remember. I mean, John Carpenter took me a while to get him too, and that that was a very good one too.
2: Right, that I, had to I be really one that very, when you when you got that interview, obviously that was a good day for you.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. Um, John Landis wasn't hard to get a hold of. He was very cool. I, I Rick Baker was wow. It was an honor to talk to him. I talked to Rick several times and. The makeup people are just like the nicest people in the world. They really, really are. I mean, Dick Smith. It was an honor to speak to him. Just a super, super nice man, and he he definitely went out of his way to to do this. And um, you know, I'm I'm very grateful for it. I, I mean, I can't recall any particular horror stories, so to speak. I mean, certain other projects I can tell you horror stories, right? But this one, it wasn't that kind of a project, and. Yeah, you know, again, there were a lot of people I couldn't reach, and you know, I don't know if it was because of the recession or what. A lot of people didn't have agents or managers at the time, so some people were kind of difficult to try and reach or try to find. And but you know, I didn't have the usual just uh, the usual nightmares that often can come with trying to reach people and trying to get stuff like that done. I, I, nothing, nothing comes immediately. Sure,
2: that. sure. Well, um, tell me and tell our listeners. Um what would be your, your top three movies if you were going to um, have to squirrel yourself away for one night and uh, maybe be your last night of watching movies on Earth?
0: Oh, God. <laughs> I, and the funny thing is, is I don't know if there would be a horror film on there. <laughs> about a horror film.
2: Well, it'll it be cause for I our like purposes. Horror,
0: cause I like the classic horror films. I just don't <laughs> know. And right, top three, that's tough. Um, boy, say. I mean, and people ask questions like this all the time, and I really don't know how to answer them um as far as like horror nights what i would what I would watch um well that's a good question I really don't know i mean um and and one I would probably pick ones you wouldn't expect because like one of my all time favorite horror films of all time, even though I don't know if you can consider it in the same week as like psycho or that was it was creep show which I've always loved um you know the thing I've, i i I will always have a place in my heart for when a stranger calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's see what else. Um, Oh boy, I'm trying to think. Uh, Probably Jaws Two. If if it was going to be my last night on Earth, I probably want to see that one more time before I go.
2: Did you say Jaws Two or Jaws?
0: Oh no, Jaws. Jaws as well is what I meant.
2: I was just asking because you said you were
0: you like Jaws Two. I do, but it's not Jaws. You know, (laughs) it's not the it's not the original Jaws. Um, Trying to think what else would be in the book that I would um, that I would definitely want to see before. like on my horror bucket list, I guess you could say uh, probably yeah. phantasm too. that yeah. ones. And then the, the first phantasm movie is an enormous fun. And that definitely brings back a lot of memories for me because I was coming of age when that movie came out and, you know, that kind of thing. And I was too young to see it, but I, I remember being scared by the TV commercials for it.
2: Well, the, um, uh, the thing I wanted to make sure we say about your book, real terror is that you have a true encyclopedic knowledge of these, um, of these movies, and uh, I, I know you're you're a modest person, and you won't you won't come out and say that. But I'm going to say it for you. And uh, you know, is there a, is there a movie that you think American audiences have overlooked, American fans that that you really love and would love to see sort of get its due?
0: Oh, uh, let's see. Years ago, for Fangoria, I did a story on a movie called "What Scared Jessica to Death." That's a long lost horror gem that um, I don't think has the audience it should today. That's a really interesting, different, and, you know, fairly scary movie. It's a really neat little low-budget gem that um, I enjoyed writing about and enjoyed going back and revisiting a lot. Um you know, other guy, other cult guys. It's hard to say because, like, I think it, it's great that like Mario Bava is like now getting his due. The Italian horror filmmaker, he's done a lot of great stuff. Can, can but you, people you... are starting to catch on that like this is a great guy and right. this is somebody who. Um, um, uh, but that one first comes to mind. Let's scare Jessica to death. And there's some other more obscure ones that were starting to get their due too. It's like something like Death Dream. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if that movie totally has its due but I remembered seeing that on Elvira when I was a kid and being really blown away by it um, the The Bob Clark um, Alan Ormsby film although that one may have already had its due or is in the process of getting its due I mean you can't say that about um, you know like another Bob Clark horror film like Black Christmas I mean that's like one that I think people have seen and you know and really know that's a really terrific horror film right um, maybe something like although it's it's definitely flawed and it has its flaws. Um, I, I think The Fog is actually a pretty neat mm-hmm. little neat little horror film. I always had a soft spot in my heart for it. It's uneven and it has its flaws, but it's definitely well worth checking out. Um, you know, I it was a success when it came out. I think I, I do kind of remember there was a bit of a disappointment at the time because you know it was, was kind of like after Tarantino did Pulp Fiction and everyone was expecting something as wild and irreverent and it wasn't and you know i mean halloween was such a big phenomenon when that came out i think a lot of people were expecting kind of more of the same and you know you know you, you can't really strike lightning like that so many times although i think you did with the thing and actually the funny thing is you know my favorite john carpenter film isn't a horror film at all it's assault on precinct Thirteen. So, uh. you know it's it, So I I, I don't know. But off the top of my head, I would say that. um, I don't know if you could technically consider this a horror film, but um, since I was a kid seeing it on the Z channel, I've always been a big fan of Brian De Palma's Obsession. I think that's a great movie, even though I don't know if I would call it a horror film. Uh, The Fury, which is kind of more of like a horror film, that's that's starting to get its due again. And uh, there's quite a few horror films I should go back and take a look at. But, you know, for every... You know, it's just like for every huge band, like a Van Halen or a Metallica, there's tons of little bands that very few people remember that should right. be better remembered. And the same thing with horror films. I'm sure for like every Halloween, there's like all these other movies. Oh, man, that was a great movie, and no one remembers it like it should, and, you know, right. that that kind of thing.
2: What You know, I'll, we have one more question, and then we'll, we'll move on to our, our close here. Um, what are your thoughts on the, uh, what I, I guess commonly would be known as the torture porn genre that, uh, that's been uh, – extremely popular over the last five to seven years, and there's been sort of heavy pushback, I think, by some groups, as we know that that monitor culture. What, what are your thoughts well, on even, that?
0: I don't even know if torture – I, I kind of looked at torture porn as just like a trend that kind of had its year and a half, two years, and then people just kind of moved on from it. Um, you know, I, what do I think of it? Not much. I mean, I think – I've always been of the opinion that shock value, for the for the sake of shock value, is stupid. And I think that's essentially what torture porn is. I right. don't think it's really saying anything deep or introspective. I'm not against it, you know. It's if people want to watch it, that's great. But it's like, you know, you see all these Eli Roth movies. Like, yeah, great. I mean, you're acting out all your, you, you know, your your rape and revenge fantasies against every chick who wouldn't blow you in high school. Yeah, great. Can can you do anything else? Right. You know, it's like, can you make any other kinds of movies, or is this all you do? I mean, right. you know, it's like, I mean, that's finally that wants to do it. I don't care. It's just you know you wonder like can you make any other kinds of movies you know can you make a movie that's really scary you know like that kind of thing you know yeah um, that's, that's that's kind of the way I look at no, it no I kind mean, of I, mean, I, 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 I kind of felt from the beginning that it was just a trend and trends just come and go and right. it's like you know it's like I, I don't know I, I, I don't know I I don't watch those movies I'm really not that interested I'm not against them I'm not against censorship and you know I'm not. You know, I'm against censorship in any way, shape, or form. I mean, let them, let them be made, let them be shown, and, you know. It's, uh, but, you know, again, I think it just kind of came and went pretty quickly, because I don't think there was really that much to it, really. I think it's just, again, it's a bunch of people acting out, like, you know, their their revenge fantasies against, you know, the chicks that wouldn't fuck them in high school and all that. And that's kind of all there is to it. Right. I don't really see much else to it, right. frankly. Right.
2: The, the, the traditional last question on the New Books podcast, Dave, is about um, your current upcoming or upcoming projects. Uh, what are you working on now? How can people get in touch with you?
0: Um, let's see. Well, you can get in touch with me on Facebook, and I'll also give you my email where you can reach me, K-O-N-O-W-D at PacBell.net. You can also look me up on Facebook. And as far as my next project, I can't give away too much only because... Um, I've had two ideas stolen out from under me, including maybe this one. (laughs) Uh, You know, maybe somebody got a book about horror films out a lot faster than I did, and maybe he was aware that I was working on one, maybe, maybe not. Uh, (laughs) I have to be a little vague about that, but uh, it taught me a very valuable lesson about telling people my ideas, especially considering a lot of people could be listening to this and could uh, potentially suicide do, too. Um, What I will say is it will make a very good companion volume to real terror. Okay. And that's all I'll say about that at the moment. I am working on something else. It's coming together slowly, but surely as books usually do. Um, You know, I'm still not up to the point where I can churn out a book every six months like a lot of people do. And, you know, I know the publishing industry needs to be fed, but, you know, it's, um, you know, I'm still not working that fast as an author just yet. But, uh, yes, I have other stuff. And I also write regularly uh, for the website Tested and uh, Tested.com. You know it's uh, run by the MythBusters guys, and i'm very proud to be a contributor for them i also write daily for a website called tgdaily tgdaily.com and um there's some other stuff i have coming up in the future for some other publications as well and uh um just you know just google my name and you'll you'll see quite a few things pop up and uh there's quite a few things coming up in the future that uh you know if you like this book there's other stuff um that i'm doing for other publications and websites uh, I'm out
2: there. I'm around. Well, we appreciate it very much. I appreciate you coming on, and I will. I will say this: that a, a friend of mine recently said to me that about another individual who will remain nameless that says he doesn't write; he types. And so, you are most definitely a, a writer, and uh, yeah, cranking out a book in every six months. I think that would be. Uh, well i'm sure it can be done i'm not sure what the product it is, and is i
0: need to work a lot faster. And actually you know that that quote was taken from truman capote and he said that about jack Kerouac. okay
2: so, well there you go so i'll to try have to and get- take
0: that with a grain of salt <laughs> in that <regard>. see that, <laughs> so I'm, that I'm, jack I'm- Kerouac could write but uh <laughs> but, but yeah that's that's truman capote who started that uh that particular insult and uh you know, hey, I am just uh you know, I'm not Truman Capote or Jack Kerouac but but damn I work hard. That's yeah. all I can say. You know, it's like I work very hard and to to anybody out there who reads and enjoys my stuff and even if you don't enjoy my stuff at least you took the time to read it and hey I appreciate it thank you very much
2: hey Dave we appreciate it Um, again Real Terror the scary bloody gory 100 year history of classic horror films was published by St. Martin's Press in 2012 it's an excellent book as I mentioned already in the podcast I'm not the biggest fan of horror but I certainly found a number of things in the book to kind of challenge my beliefs and to uh, really Mm get me uh, thinking a little bit harder about what it uh, means to be really scared when you're sitting in the dark watching a film. Hey, Dave, I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, my pleasure. One last thing, if I could add, um, that's also what I've tried to go for in life as well is that if you know nothing about metal or horror or whatever I'm writing about, you can still read it and enjoy it anyway. So even if you're not a, a horror film fan, um, I, I still think there's an entertaining story to be told in here.
2: And, and of course, Bang Your Head, The Rise and Fall of Heavy Metal is still in print.
0: Yes, yes. In fact, uh, believe it or not, we are coming up on the 11th anniversary, November 12th. It came out into the world, and it's it's been in print and out there in cyberspace for, in November, it'll be 11 years. Wow.
2: Is there is there e-book available of that? Yes, there is. Well... And, and that Amazon, makes you
0: good reads all that stuff it's, it's still
2: out there well dave I, dave I gotta tell you that most definitely makes you a writer if you have been uh your, your print <laughs> book has been turned to an ebook you have you have graduated so again thank you so much and hopefully you'll come back on when you have your next unnamed project in the world
0: yeah and, and by then it will have a name <laughs> okay <for all.
2: laughs> thanks dave
0: cool my pleasure
2: okay bye-bye you've been listening to a conversation with dave Kono. About his book Real Terror, the scary, bloody, gory, hundred year history of classic horror films, which was published by St. Martin's Press in 2012. I'm Greg Renoff. I've been your host for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening.